Radio Mano Papachango. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking, now located on Substack.com. Before we get into this episode, I just want to remind you, because this is all still fresh and new on this beautiful spring Easter day, fresh as the newly risen Jesus, um, I'm on Substack, and I would encourage you, even if you have no intention of giving me any money, which is totally fine, it's been fine for years and years, um, but I would still encourage you to go to Substack, chrisryan.substack.com, and sign up. Just uh, give them your email address, and that way you'll be alerted to whatever I put out, because I'm not just doing podcasts anymore, I'm also doing written stuff, and I'm pulling back from Twitter, from Instagram, and I'm locating all my grumblings and utterances and uh, things that seem smart to me but might not seem smart to you. All those beautiful things, all that content I'm creating. I'm a content creator, ladies and gentlemen. So whatever content I create is being distributed on my Substack page, chrisryan.substack.com. Um, so if you follow me on social media, you will notice, or maybe you won't notice that I'm fading away, but that's only because my presence is over on Substack. So you'll be getting that stuff in the last, uh, what week or so that I've been doing this. I published, uh, a response to a column by David Brooks about American foreign policy um, I did a, a little essay about, it's called Voices in My Head, which I think will be a recurring um, feature on my Substack page, which is uh, what I'm reading, what films I've watched recently, and you know what I've thought about this stuff, um, what music I've come across recently. Um, so it's that kind of thing. So if you want to keep up with what's going on in the little world of Dr. Fur, Substack is the place to do it. As I said, you don't need to pay anything. If you do want to pay, it's uh, five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, which is uh, four seventeen a month or something like that. And uh, so it's not a huge investment. But uh, as I said, even if you can't afford it or you just don't want to, it's still worthwhile to give them your email and uh, you'll get alerts. Now, if you don't want an alert every time I publish something on there, I've also created a monthly option, uh, and there are instructions in the welcome email for how to set that up. So you'll just get an email once a month with a summary, uh, kind of a newsletter of what I've done over the last month, um, you know, what episodes have gone up, all that kind of stuff. So if you just listen to the podcast and that's all you want, then you can keep doing that on whatever podcast app you're using at the moment. That shouldn't change at all. All right. Now let's get into this. This is a... One of those episodes that just dropped out of the sky. 
The guy's name is Zen uh, Ramun, I think it is, or maybe Ramud, I forget. I don't have my notes in front of me. I'm doing this on the fly. I have to leave this hotel in about an hour. And uh, so I wanted to get this up and out before I lose access to the lovely Marriott Wi-Fi network. Thank you, Marriott Wi-Fi network. Um, Anyway, this guy um, listens to the podcast. He's been listening for years. And um, I forget what the the purpose was, but some he sent me an email and we started chatting a bit. And um, I learned a little bit about his life. He's a really interesting guy. He's a Syrian, born and raised in Syria, but he's um, an atheist. And he's kind of a... You know, he's like a kid who grew up in this very oppressive country. I mean, it's, as he said, it's the the North Korea of the Middle East. It's the most repressive. It's the most isolated. Um, As you probably know, it's been at war for uh, quite a while now, sort of a civil war. But, of course, external powers get involved. And so it's been devastating, horrible. And uh, he and his family fled the country as refugees. And um, he tells the story in this podcast of uh, what that's like, what it's like to be. I think he was in his early 20s uh, when he made his way to Istanbul and then um, basically hired a, a human smuggler operation. He joined an operation to to get himself into Europe. And um, he tells a quite harrowing story about that. Um, Yeah, he's a really interesting guy, very smart, speaks English beautifully. Um, He was doing translation work, I think, in Syria, he said, uh, or studying English uh, in the university when he uh, when he decided to leave. But he's, you know, he's kind of like political there are a lot of reasons he could not stay in Syria. If this guy had stayed in Syria, he probably would not be alive to tell the story that he tells in our conversation. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's an opportunity to hear from someone who's actually living um, some of the things that we're reading about in newspapers or seeing in the news you know, the refugee crisis, it's a big deal and it's getting bigger and bigger. And uh, so it's always good to hear the voices of people who are actually living these stories. So that's it. Thanks for listening. And uh, I hope you're doing well. The other thing about signing up for Substack is that when I send out these emails, I include music. So I don't play the song in the audio uh, file anymore um, because that's just gotten kind of... Sometimes I do if if it's from a listener, I'll do that. Um, but if it's a, a piece of music or piece of comedy... Oh, that's the other thing. I put up a couple uh, comedy uh, YouTube things, uh, one of which is really funny. It's this guy talking about learning English and how complicated it is. And it's always really interesting to hear a foreigner talk about something that you uh, take for granted. And he talks about how complicated the word ass is. Um, You know, like 
if you're an ass, you're bad, but if you're badass, you're great. I mean, just stuff like that. It's really, it's funny. Anyway, you can, uh, even if you don't sign up, you can just go to chrisryan.substack.com and you'll see the, those posts there. I think it's like the complexity of ass or something like that. All right, everybody. I hope your ass is feeling great. Uh, and I hope everybody's having a holy and wonderful Easter. And I hope we all get resurrected soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. All right. I'm here with Zen. Uh, when I say here, I mean I'm in Gran Canaria, and you are where? Bucharest? Yeah, in Bucharest, Romania. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of background. We don't know each other. Uh, you just sent me an email the other day and mentioned um, that you're originally from Syria and uh, you're a refugee in Romania. And uh, we decided to to chat, have a have a conversation. Um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that uh, obviously, what's going on in the world right now, um, the question of refugees is very important. A lot of people are thinking about it and talking about displacement and uh, war and so on. So, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit. Um, about what it's like from your perspective. And so can you just sort of tell us your story a little bit, like where you grew up and and uh, what's been happening? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> well, uh, I was born in 1991 in a Syrian city called Tartus. It's on the Mediterranean. And uh, I lived there till I was like 24, 25 I was in the, my third year of English-Arabic translation studies in the university. Then I had to leave because of the war, basically. Like, there is a mandatory draft to the war. And as everyone knows, like, Syria is being uh, ruled by a dictatorship. And uh, I like the city that I belong to, It it's kind of like the dictatorship part you know so all the people there is like there is no chance you have to be with the with the government or like the ruling system and uh, i had to leave for like three reasons the first reason was um the mandatory draft just like basically they are sending you to get killed defending the dictator and the, the second one was like i came out on facebook as an atheist as start sharing stuff, you know, have this enthusiasm when you when I think all the atheist fellows, especially from like a religious background, you just want to celebrate yourself. Like I'm, I don't believe in that. Whatever. I was sharing a lot of stuff on Facebook, so I start to get like death threats on my phone. And the third reason was I was my name was on the blacklist of the secret police. I was hanging out in like a small cafe in Tartus with the, like, how to say, rebel spirited people mm. talking about politics, talking about wherever it's taboo and that, which, which are a lot of taboos in that society. So like, I, I have some kind of conflict with when people say, where are you from? Or what's your, what's your home? And I see a lot of people like they, they talk proudly about 
their home and I have nothing against them. It's it's the opposite. It's like it's kind of like, yeah, uh, it's that it's like you come from a place that you never felt welcome there. There's a lot of threats. There's a lot of danger. Uh, so at in, in September 2015, I left to Istanbul after I was applying to go to uh, Romania where my brother was already there since 2013. And my visa got rejected because the refugee crisis was like on the rise. So I went to Istanbul and I just catched the last few months of letting Syrian people go there without a visa. <clears throat> I arrived in the first week of uh, being in Istanbul. And it's, it was like, I'm, I'm now cutting a lot of the story, you know, uh, for, for your listeners who doesn't know, like Syria is the North Korea of the Middle East. It's the most closed country. It's uh, like the father of the current dictator was trying to make it some kind of like North Korea of the Middle East. And I was just like on the f- first few days, f- my some friends gave me a number of a smuggler to go to Europe. My destination was the Netherlands. Like mm-hmm. I always was fascinated by this country and I knew about their freedom a little bit of it because also the weed, you know, I was young and <laughs> uh, I got the number of the smuggler and uh, it was, it was a harsh experience. The thing is that I got the number that we called the guy. We, I went to like an, a third party office to put the money. Like in case you arrive, they will take the money. If you go back, you will, they will give you back the money. Before that, I contact, uh, like, there was an um, uh, American producer who made documentaries. I sent him a message before that, and I told him, I'm going on that trip, like, between Turkey and Greece. So if you'd like to shoot the film, like, and be on the boat with me, he didn't reply, but I sent him that message just in case if something happened, there will be someone on the boat with the American nationality. People will move for that. Like, you know, right. I, I knew that. I knew that since, like, I knew since I was young that I am in a dangerous, bad place, you know. So I know how the world works to a certain limit. So that guy didn't answer, and I went on the boat. The To tell you a little bit about the story, uh so we gathered at like one of the square in Istanbul with a bunch of Syrian people and their kids and their bags, whatever. And then we went on a trip from Istanbul to a, a city called Chanakli. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. It's uh, near a Greek island. So they would just put the people on the inflatable boat and they will get them to that island. Uh, on the road, uh, I, I remember like when we gathered on that square, I remember the smuggler came with like a new BMW and the people were like, and a lot of buses and vans and stuff. So the buses and vans were already full and he had to put some people in his his new car, you know, and people were just getting there very aggressively. And I remember he, he was saying like, I'm just telling you bits of the what stuck in my memory. And the other guy told him, like, hey, make sure that people pay attention to the car. It's a new car. And the guy told them, like, no, no it's, 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 it's haram money. It's like in, in Islam, they have the haram and halal concepts. Like haram mm-hmm. is something that's just you gained. It's 
by by badness, you know, and the halal is just something. So he, he just said, get it, whatever, just let the people in. And this is the time, one of the first time I felt like, to just tell you something about my childhood, I have a, a overprotective father that living in my household was I always most of the time in the house playing PlayStation and watching whatever pop culture series and movies. And I always resonated with the people on the shows, you know, like I didn't know where my position on the world is, you know, and that moment I saw like, ah, I am one of those people who they talk about in documentaries, you know, just like now I am part of that. And uh, it was just like, since I went with my backpack there, I just, I, I recall the emotion as like me sitting inside of myself and watching this as right. someone else, you know, it's just like. Right. So, so what, we, what struck you yeah. about him saying this is, uh, this, this, so this is the smuggler in his fancy new car. Yeah. And he's saying, don't worry about it. Just let the people come in. It doesn't matter because I got this car from doing bad things. Is is that? Exactly. It's like in the Islam religions, like if you get something from haram, it will go with haram. You know, it's if you get it, it's, it's like he already know that he's doing something bad. So he doesn't right. care about it. And that was he, is like... Was he Greek or was he Turkish? No, he was Syrian, actually. He was Syrian. Okay. Yeah. Right. And yeah, how yeah. did you know, like, you you said you left the money with a third party. Um, yeah. And so the, there was a guarantee that if you don't get to Greece, they'll give your money back? How, why yep. did you trust the third party? Who, how does that work? Be, it's like, uh, how to say, insurance, some kind of office for insurance. And all the people on that boat was putting their money there. So mm. I had no choice. That's it. You cannot give the money to directly to the smuggler because he just walk away. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So that's how it works. Interesting. So did the smuggler, did he feel guilty about what he was doing? Is that the implication? I feel like, I don't know if you have been into a such situation when you see people like their facial expression shows that they are doing something bad, but they cannot stop it because it's, there's a lot of money behind it. That right. was the emotion of those right. guys, like getting the people in the cars. Like, yeah, I know, but I don't care. And he was like wearing very uh, like expensive clothes and stuff. Right. And uh, just like those people are blinded by greed. This is the emotion. And this, you feel yourself as some kind of uh, how to say uh, like st stuff in, a, in the in the back of a truck you know like what do you call right. the word in cargo English? yeah yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah. and and do you and, think he felt he didn't feel badly that he was helping syrians get into europe he felt badly that he was taking your money i think he was feeling bad because it was there was a high chance of death for the people. Ah, I see. And if the people die, they will get the money. So there is no one will go back and because they're people. So it's just like right. human trafficking, basically. And uh, Right. Wow. That's intense. And and you were, what, 24, 25 at this point? Yeah. 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 And w your brother's already in Romania. And is the rest of your family still in Syria? No, uh, now all my immediate family, they live here in Bucharest. Ah, but okay. 
each one of them got here in a different way like um wow so yeah but after that we get like they took us to a huge park in istanbul and there was the buses with like nothing like no graphics on it no paintings nothing just white buses like old buses and then which just the buses start going and going and that felt like forever and going across the like i don't know forest and illegal roads at one point they heard there is police on the road like catching those buses so we went into like uh, a side road and a forest and waited there for a few hours and it, it, it was it was really like how to say something out of mind just no lights and they are asking people to not even turn on their phones so the police, no one could see any light or anything, kids crying and stuff. So when the the sunlight start to, like the sun start to shine, we got on the buses again and we went there. And we arrived at the shore and there was like two guys preparing the boats. And uh, there was two boats there. Uh, so the boat is designed to fit 35 people and they put almost 60 person on, on each of the boat. And then, uh, the guy that was inflating the boat had just, uh, taught one of the people on the boat, how to drive it like for two minutes. It's like, you do this, you do that. That's it. And we went there and it, the boat was getting very heavy. Like you could feel the pressure of the water. It's, it's, it's inflatable. There is no like hard surfaces and under just, you feel the water bouncing up and down. And then we went into the sea, like between uh, Turkey and Greece. And at the beginning I saw a ship, like it was very far away from the Greek side. And in the middle of the journey, like people start, I don't know, singing and whatever. It's like, oh, we're going to go arrive to Europe. And that, sh- that ship start to get closer and closer and closer. And then uh, it just blocked like the road in, uh, in front of us. And it was just full of people wearing black and, and black masks with guns and stuff. And they had this uh, megaphone and they start shouting, go back to fucking Turkey. Exactly. This is what they said. And at the same moment, there is the Turkish uh, Coast Guard ship. It was on the on the behind, just waiting to see what happens. Uh, unfortunately, there was four Iraqi guys, like they are like some kind of cousins or relatives controlling the boat. And uh, they were so stubborn and they didn't just try to maneuver over the boat and they just got away and they got closer to the Greek shore. At this point, the Turkish Coast Guard ship went back, you know, they went back with one of the boats. One of the boats decided to just go back with them. And so our one, boat, of the two, one of the two boats yes. turned around and went back, but your boat yes. continued. Exactly. <clears throat> and then we continued towards the Greek shore and the ship followed us. And when we were like very close, I don't like, I don't know, 400, 500 meters from the shore, the Greek coast guard pointed the guns at us and it was very, very serious. And uh, at one point I was like, like don't move anymore. They will kill us. And they, everyone, they got scared on the boat. And then we went towards the, 
mercenary ship. It has it had the Greek uh, flag on it, but the people on there, I recall they were talking. I don't know Ukrainian, Russian, some kind of. They are like some kind of mercenaries. So basically, what happened is um, they tied the boat, our boat, the ship with a, like a rope, and then they gave us some kind of ladder to climb up on the ship. And we did, when we did that, they searched us for phones and for money and for passports. They gathered all the passports in a plastic bag, like a trash bag, and they threw it back on the on the boat. And they took the money and they and the phones that just like any phone that had you could take the memory card out of it, they just skipped it. Uh, the other ones like iPhones and stuff, they just start to crash it, broke it in, in the half, you know, uh, because people were like taking pictures and stuff. And we stayed on the boat like for a few hours. And uh, I remember uh, they made us like the woman, they took them into like the um, inner part of the ship. And the men, we just uh, were on the surface of the ship, like doing like this, you know, like our hands on the other person, shoulders and like, mm -hmm. and that was for two hours, three hours. Uh, at this point, I felt like, you know, when you watch some action movie and I was just looking at the guy next to me, like the guard, the whatever. And I thought, like, hey, maybe I, I could move fast and grab the gun and do some heroic shit. I would just... That would be... <laughs> but at that moment, you just couldn't. You feel some kind of semi-paralyzed. You're just watching life. Uh, so and, and during this, I'm just, like, making this very short to not... Because if I want to tell this, the whole story, it will take a long time. But during this, the ship was moving somewhere in the sea, you know? It, it got to a point that you cannot see any land anymore. And by that time, it was getting dark. And at that point, I, I like we thought, we all thought that, okay, they took the money. They're, they're going to leave us uh, in Greece, at least. But they didn't. Uh, they made us go back on the boat. Uh, and at that time, we had no engine and no pedals. They took it. Just like it left us, left all of us there to die. And uh, luckily, there is one guy who have like hidden an old Nokia phone in some one of the bags. I was the only one on the boat that who could speak English and who knew the numbers of the Greek Coast Guard and the Turkish Coast Guard. Uh, I was just asking people who has a phone and the guy gave it to me and I called the, um, the Greek Coast Guard. No one answered. Called it like for many times. No one answered. And then I called the Turkish Coast Guard. And uh, a woman answered and she told me, like, uh, I told her, like, we are in the middle of the sea between Shanekali and and she said, uh, OK, we'll try to find you make like try to not this phone to not be turned off or something. I don't know. They were giving a signal or something. And she said, make sure try to calm the people down. We will get to you. Don't worry. At that point, the ship was already like far away. You can only see few lights from it, like very, very far away, and in the middle of of the sea, and it's dark. And this moment, it was the first time that I hallucinate uh, in my life, uh, without any drugs, without anything. Uh, what I felt was that because the the coast guard took a lot, uh, like a lot of time, more than one hour. And in each few minutes, you lose some kind of hope. I remember the kids were already crying 
and then the old people start crying and at the end the adults everyone on the boat was crying me i was just emotionally paralyzed i could i didn't i didn't know how what to feel or how to process just felt all the heaviness of the bags on my legs they were already numb and then when the hallucination started i i remember uh, i remember just like me in the boat but shifting my vision in my room back in tartus you know and my mother voice was calling me like hey i made you uh, the food the syrian food called mluhi like come eat and i could smell the food mm-hmm. uh, and at that point i felt like oh this is how people lose their mind this is how crazy people feel it's just like when your just mind is playing tricks on you and at one point I start to see people faces in red and blue like red blue red that's like oh that's I'm losing it at all that's it but the red and blue on the people's faces was the siren light from the Turkish coast guard uh so I, they got there they made us go into the ship and because this is one of the moments that I I, I always felt like an outcast of that society with all my respect to any middle eastern listeners or arabs or whatever when we went to the boat inside of the boat because my legs were like just numb and uh, i like there is like a long bench on an l shape so i just sat on the corner of it and then a bunch of syrian guys they just went to me and they were about to fight it's like what the fuck what's, what's wrong with you i said what it's like you you don't see the women are sitting on the bench men sit on the ground and i at that moment I was like you were about five minutes ago you were about to lose your life this is what you care about this is why we are in the fucking in the middle of the sea this is why <laughs> and uh i remember like i'm just telling you the bits of what that thing and then i remember that they got us back to a, a turkish city called azmir i had no money at that point some people have hidden some money in their crotch or wherever so uh this is what happened the turkish police they took put us in vans and they took us to um like how to say um uh, camp refugee camps and it was very uh, awful scene to see just like uh fence and people behind it and the police told us like if you don't pay each one of you 50 euro all of you are going to go into that camp and you don't know when you're going to leave So there was the people next to me and I told them like hey can you just lend in the money I am I am motion designer I have money in like but now just pay them and I will give it to you 100 whatever you want and the guy said don't worry we'll pay for you and they paid so they managed the people they paid we went all of us back to a city near Istanbul called Bursa and at that point we I had also to buy a bus ticket to go back to Istanbul and i also so, as so somebody yeah. paid for all of you to not go into no. the camp no not like that like people have hidden money like apparently i i was the only one who just put the money inside of the passport and they just uh-huh. yeah not the only like but i mean they managed like they paid people start to ask each other like can you lend us and right. people figured it out and you know right. people in in in, in such crisis they they get really empathetic especially in terms of like oh, it's a life or death decision mm. Mm. 
And uh, when we went back, I also asked the other pe- other person to just lend. It was very cheap, the other one, like the bus ticket from Bursa to Istanbul. And then I went there, and one of the I just one of the guys had already met someone in a very famous square in Istanbul when the bus dropped us. And I asked him to just log in into my Facebook to just contact the guy that I was staying in his house in Istanbul. And then he met me there. I went back. I opened my laptop. I called my brother. He was already worried. Like, I don't know how many hours I was flying. He know there is something wrong, you know. And then we just opened Skype and I just start crying, you know, just like. At that moment, I felt like... uh, in, in the moment where the Turkish ship and the Greek ship was, in, and we are in the middle, I felt like uh, I I was brought to, into this earth, but there is no place for me. You know, no one wants me, and I didn't do anything wrong. And uh, after that, like when I started reading philosophy and stuff, I figured out there is something called the. A generational karma or something like that it's just like whatever your ancestor have done you are paying that without even doing anything you know it's just whatever this those people who ruled this earth decided that you are like that even if you are not just you are paying someone else stuff it's it's a bad feeling <laughs> You said that um, <clears throat> when we were talking about people lending money and all that, you said that uh, people were empathetic. Did you feel any empathy with the mercenaries or with the Turkish Coast Guard or was the only empathy with the people you were, your sort of fellow refugees? This is the thing. When I was on the ship with the mercenaries, I remember that all of them were like apathetic. One of the guys, he was really scary. When I look into his eyes, I saw that he killed someone. You could see, I don't know if you know this, like if you look, sometimes you look into people's eyes and you see like this person have already definitely killed a lot of people or at least he killed, you know. And the boss of the mercenaries, he was the the most like I I felt when he was talking, his voice was like kind of how to say shaking, uh, yeah. and he was like talking to the other mercenaries like, hey, be a little bit, don't. He was like kind of like he was doing, he was knowing that he was doing something wrong, but yeah. only the boss. The other one was like they are like in the soldier mentality, like. Um, or just doing whatever. And the other guy that who was also a soldier, but he was just really rough with the people, like just pushing them. And he was really violent. And in the eyes, I never forget the eyes, you know, like as they say, they're the mirror of the soul. You, they tell a lot about whatever this person have done or have seen or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, were you worried that, you know, they were just going to sink the boat or or just push everybody into the ocean out there, into the sea? Or did you feel like there was... Because, you know, those, as you know, those those boats go down all the time, right? Like hundreds yeah. of people are, are drowning in the Mediterranean. I don't know if it's every month or certainly every year. Um, were you were you worried at all that that's what they were going to do that they would just take your money and your passports and then throw people I think, into the ocean 
I think that was their intention, but they didn't want to do it. You know, just like lay lift us to die, but they don't want to do the action for us to die. Right. Right. And, and actually, at the end, before the Turkish ghost god who saved us, uh, the bottom of the uh, boat was already like, I don't know, three inches of water. It was already sinking, you know. Right. Right. Fuck, man. And and I mean, what if what if no one had hidden the phone? And also, how do you get a signal out there? You know, you're out in the middle of the Mediterranean. You're you getting a signal on an old Nokia phone. That's amazing. The thing is, like, I think those kind of emergency numbers, they you can call uh, them without even having a SIM on the phone. I see. I'm sorry. Yeah, I got it. Speaking of phones, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's an incredible story, man. So, so you're back in Istanbul. Um, did you get your money back from that third party insurance agency? I did, but they took like fifty dollar their expense. Oh, oh they yeah. take their commission, sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fucking business people. So then what? So then you you had to do it all again or what what happened? Then the rest of my friends arrived from Tartus. This is also another decision that I don't know, man. Just like I think life is fucking with me. This is what I think till now. <laughs> so My friends, with everybody, man. <laughs> on a different levels. Yeah. <laughs> My friends, they arrived from Tartus and they told me like, "Hey, we're we are making a group. We're going on a boat. It's gonna be all just people. Do you know? Let's go again." At that point, I was very, I was traumatized. Like I remember yeah. seeing the guy that I told you about, about with the killer eyes. I remember seeing that guy in my dreams for like a month, you know, and I was like re really scared. I I felt like I was throwing, I was gambling with my life. It's just that could be the last decision that I would ever made. And I was too young to understand this kind of things. Just like this is the first time I felt such danger and stuff. I was very traumatized and. Their boat, actually, they arrived and everyone went whatever country they want. Some went to Germany, some went to Netherlands, some to Sweden. Sorry. And I stayed there. Uh, and then I was talking with my brother. He said, I will figure out something to get you here legally. And we started this, uh, like there was this relocation programs for refugees from Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey to European countries. Romania as a country is not prepared to have any refugees, you know. Uh, the funny thing is like in 2018, Syria was the number one country with their people fled out of it. And the number two country was Romania, you know. Mm. So it's uh, the second poorest country in Europe. Uh, I didn't know all of that at that time. I, I thought that all of Europe is the same, like the same thing is in Germany, is the same thing in Bulgaria and Romania. I didn't know anything, you know, and I have a lot of ambitions. And like, I wanted to study psychology. I wanted to do a lot of things. So to not take long with that, the, I applied through the United Nation and um, it was the relocation program. I waited there almost two years. I waited for one year and nine months. And uh, here it's just the small things start to acknowledge like again uh, my position in, in, this, in the world so I made friends there um, uh, a lot of friends and I start to go to this bar they have like an open stage 
uh, on Tuesday, and I was there reading poetry, making psychology observations, and all, doing a lot of stuff. And uh, when I just when I was getting drunk and chatting with people, and I met a lot of Erasmus students, just the student exchange program in Europe. And they were like in my age or younger or older. And I saw how life is like, I don't know, easy for them. You know, just what are you doing in Istanbul? Oh, I'm studying this and I'm going on an exchange program in Istanbul for a few months. And then I'm going home. And and me, I was just like one of the few people. There was other Syrian people there. But I was like, okay, I don't know why I didn't, I don't have that paper. But for whatever reason, I just like, this is what I'm telling you when life is joking with me. Just you stay there. You just wait for someone to confirm that you are safe enough to be traveled, to be, I don't know, moved to other countries. After that, I moved to Romania and I understood why, why those things happen, why there is, why there are passports. And my conclusion is like every society has a different set of values, uh, you know, and uh, some society, I don't, I don't want to use the word civilized because, you know, it's a civilization thing. But I think what makes uh, a function in society is a level of trust mm. that people trust each other to a level. And then if you get a bunch of people from another society that they don't have, they don't share this trust, a lot of problems will happen. At least this is my conclusion. Like now I understand it, why? But at the same time, it's still unfair. It's just like you are a human, you are brought on this earth and you are just decided that this square is for you and the other 200 squares that you don't have access on them for whatever reason. I feel, I always felt like, I don't know, Syria especially, it's just like if the world is a big house or a big villa, Syria is the backyard of the backyard. No. <laughs> yeah. So uh, w- given what you said about trust, this, this is actually something I, I wanted to ask you about. Um, because, you know, there's what's happening in Ukraine now. There's a lot of talk about how Europe is accepting millions of refugees from Ukraine, um, you know, uh, organizations at the border uh, with Poland set up to welcome them, to give them food and clothes and people offering, you know, rooms in their house and and so on and so forth. It's like, at least at the moment, Europe seems to have their arms open to welcome Ukrainian refugees. And there's a lot of talk about how hypocritical this is because of the the way that Europe deals with refugees from North Africa or from Syria. And I understand that, but it seems like another part is what you just said, that cultures have values and trust is very important and it's harder to trust someone who comes from a society whose values are very different because you don't understand what they're thinking. You don't understand what's important to them. You know, so I think about these situations that happen in, um, well, in France, particularly, and in the UK where uh, someone comes from Pakistan or Afghanistan or, uh, and they're living in London or in Paris 
and their daughter uh, has a boyfriend, but according to their Islamic law that they grew up with, this is not legitimate. But that little girl grew up in Paris or in London, so she's a Westerner. So there's a, a very you know stark difference between the parents' thinking and the child's thinking, and then you have these honor killings where you know or or genital mutilation or you know all yeah. these so it's i mean i i don't know how to think about these things because of course i feel like we need to help people those of us who have more or who are luckier need to spread that around and help everyone else but on the other hand i can understand why you know, I can't just move to Morocco if I want to. I can't move to Pakistan. I'm not welcome there as a, you know, non-believer, uh, an infidel. Um, so there seems to be some hypocrisy, right? Like Europe is supposed to help refugees from anywhere, whereas those, you know, Assad is not going to welcome a bunch of Europeans to come and live in Syria, right? What do you, how do you feel about all this i think humanity in general is doing is being humane as possible as it could they could you know this is the best we could as a human species mm. i understand why they are welcoming the ukrainian more they share the same religion they are the same skin color the like on a biological level you could relate to this if you are a european you relate to this and you feel more peace with this i understand that I am. I don't. I don't personalize any of that. You know. Uh, at the same time, like whenever I meet other refugees there, and they are complaining, like, "Oh, you go to the supermarket and there is pork everywhere." I tell them, like, "Hey, you have to understand that you come from a country that has war. Be grateful that you are alive, and don't pack your culture with you in the bag. Mm. You have to leave it there if you want to stay alive. You have to respect." Like, for example, I have a love-hate relationship with Romania. Uh, the love comes from that this country, at least there is no one want to kill me. There is no one wants to force me to hold a gun. I don't want to do that. This is I appreciate. And uh, I don't know, like, the Syrian don't have, like, deeds for the Romanians. And, but I, this is what I appreciate. At the same time, there is life here is very hard. There is not a lot of job. Like, I don't know if you rent a house at 350 euro and if you get a job is 450 euro. It's very difficult to live here. It's, it's mm. almost insane. At the same time, on my, on my lowest point and with all my traumas and with all the things that I have been, I'm, I'm still grateful to be alive. You know, it's just like at least the Romanians don't own like I don't owe them anything, you know, just. Even I felt this in Turkey, you know, and uh, just like the Turkish people were just like using the Syrian, uh, not the, the government, sorry. They were using the Syrian refugee as a card to push on the EU or whatever. Like it was very politically played. But at yeah. the same time, they were just like, you stay there, you live here and you are not going to kill you just wherever. And this is what I, I come back to the point when I tell you it's, it's a very hard feeling and, and profound to feel that the home that it should the place that should be home of you you're not welcome there so you feel globally homeless i would say you know 
right. is the other word of like citizen of the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah not, not romantic. Do you, so you have a Romanian passport now, or what? How do you? What's your nationality at this point? Uh, I am in the process to have a Romanian citizenship. Now I have like uh, how to say a blue passport. It's like for refugee. I have a refugee status in Romania. Can you travel now, within Europe? Yes. Uh, there is two types of uh, um, refugee status in Europe. You either get the blue passport, which you can go. Uh, it's like a permanent refugee status. You are on the runway of getting the citizenship. Right. Or you get the silver one, which is like protection. So in case whatever your place, like whatever the uh, place that you come from, the war is ended, you are automatically sent back. Oh. Yeah. And and you have a blue one at this point. Yep. So, so if the war were to end in Syria, would you want to go back? No. Yeah. Of course not. The thing is, like, a lot of people they just they hated the country after the war started. But for me, it was like since I was young. You know, right. my mother is Lebanese, and uh, mm -hmm. in the summer we used to go to Lebanon, which is like more open to the world more westernized like the people are nicer the country is more beautiful and from that point when i was very young i developed this kind of passion for for traveling mm. and uh, i knew on a very young age that uh, i this is this is hard to do it's like uh, my passport cannot get me anywhere and uh, like this is why i resonate a lot with your podcast the your passion of traveling i i think uh, other than that i think the people who listen to tangentially speaking, as I call it, they belong to the same uh, psychological tribe. You know, it's like if you meet this is the same way you describe the listeners. If you meet with anyone, you at least you will share big part of your thoughts. And and right. uh, I see that not just on the like the audience of tangentially speaking. I see it in everywhere. Like I don't know, musicians they belong to a psychological tribe, and mm -hmm. that I had this uh, idea in my mind like. If I'm going to study psychology, I'm going to like write a paper about that, you know, the psychological tribe thing. And uh, yeah, so my 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 desire to leave that country, it was since I was young, me and my brothers, like we knew that this, this is a bad place, we should leave wherever. And uh, the country itself is a beautiful country. It's a lot of, I don't know, history and a lot of like there is... In the city that I grow in, there is a like a two thousand old church, and they say that Jesus passed through it and stuff. You know, it's a lot of things, but I think this is the the price that old uh, civilization pay. I mean, now the world is for the new ones. You know, as as I see it, it's like uh, I'm not gonna call it the West, but the most modern, the most recent one. The old one are just they are stuck in their own because they were the big, they were the how to say uh, like they say that the Middle East or Palestine or Syria or Israel they were the cradle of the civilization, which is true, but people are still stuck in their the first edition of that civilization till now, yeah. and now it's just. Uh, the world of for, for the new ones, I would say. So it it kind of feels like from a very young age, you were preparing for this life in some ways, you know, like 
learning English, for example. Like if you didn't speak English so well, how how different would your experience have been? I, I imagine, you know, your your proficiency in English probably helped you with getting to Romania. No, like when you applied for that UN program. Yep, and and also your your sort of distance from Islam and your feeling, uh, you know, as an atheist that you don't need to live according to those rules. Um, that also prepares you for living in a different culture. Uh, do, do you feel like, is there any sort of sense of destiny in your life? Do you feel like there's a reason or a meaning for these experiences that you've had? The thing is that I always saw myself leaving the country, but not in in a refugee status. You know, I right. just felt like I would just move one day out. And the thing about religion, I I belong to a, an Alawite family. They are not like the Alawite thing is just like a small religious group. They are not, they don't consider themselves Islam, but by rules, they were put uh, under the Islam in the 1970s for a political mm. reason, because mm. the father of the current dictator he was talking with uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser, which is like the president of Egypt at that time. And in Egypt, they have this, uh, it's like the Vatican for Muslims, you know, they have this mosque, I forgot the name. So they decide the rules, like which kind of religious group go under the umbrella of Islam. And he asked him, because he was already very powerful in the military, the the, the, the Hafiz Assad, he asked Jamal Abdel Nasser to uh, just put that religious group under the umbrella of Islam so he could be the president by the constitution of Syria. Because in the oh. constitution of Syria, yeah, if you want to be a president, you have to be a Muslim. So from just like very, so you see, other than that, just like since a very young age, the religion didn't make sense for me. It just like, I didn't took the answers when like, I always have discussion with religious people from a very young age and when i get the answer like oh, and why that and they say god knows that never made sense for me it's just like <laughs> yeah. i felt yeah. like math and science they make sense at least they give you they give you i don't know sometimes you know but religion is like it's always definitive and when they when you just go after someone they would just tell you oh you are too young to understand you have to read you have and this is this is the answer never it's just like an alibi for anyone who just want you to be uh in a how to say in a dogmatic state of mind you know mm-hmm. yeah so like yeah yeah so what are you doing now what's what's life like in bucharest well I am. Uh, I do motion design, freelance. What is that? What it's is like motion you, design? You animate graphics, basically. Uh-huh. Like if oh, you okay. walk into a bank and you see the screen of like little characters handing the coin, this kind of stuff. Mm. I do the animation of that graphics. Uh, but my passion is for psychology and music. I like on the weekends I go busk on the street of Bucharest, play the guitar, and. Uh, I try to make a living out of the motion graphics. I'm not very like crazy about it, but that's what I'm doing right now. And what about music? What kind of music do you play? Well, recently I'm getting into jazz. 
which I discovered that there is music and there is jazz, you know? (laughs) I am mostly into psychedelic rock, you know? I just uh, love to get high, play music with some friends, and it just, it's the most, for me, it's the most honest expression of, uh, of self by music. And uh, just like it feels like when you get very good at an instrument, it feels like you are talking through it, which mm-hmm. is like um, an experience that it couldn't be described. Like I, I, I listened to your podcast with the Beato, Rick Beato, yeah. and I, I saw how like how enthusiastic you are about music, and he was like explaining everything how it makes sense and. And when you said that uh, one time you woke up and you said you want to be like a piano player. <laughs> Concert pianist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't wake up. I was high on LSD. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> and and I, had, I had the vision like, oh, my life makes sense. I'm going to concert pianist, Yeah. <laughs> like talking about that, I have also a few questions for you. Like, yeah, sure. Do you recall a certain age when you felt like this, this is this is my purpose, at least like our part of my purpose. This is why I exist. For you know, do you recall a, like a certain period of your life that when those insights or those I don't know came to you? Um. Yeah, I I would say in different ways, you know, um, for a while, I found a lot of meaning and satisfaction in traveling and in reading, which is another form of travel and in, um, you know, the sort of exploration of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So those, to me, those are all the same thing, just doing it in different ways, you know, Mm -hmm. um, even sexuality, I think for me is very much like travel, you know, and Mm -hmm. when I was young, I just wanted to experience as many different countries and women and states of consciousness and novels and short stories and I just wanted my mind to go in as many different places as it could. Mm -hmm. And, um, You know, I still feel that to some extent, but I also feel like after a while that started to feel um, repetitive, like, okay, I'm not really going to new places now. I'm just sort of repeating the same things with different countries Mm. or different people or whatever. Um, So, yeah, then, you know, I I sort of moved away from that and, and started Uh, you know, when I started researching sexuality in prehistory, I felt like that was a coming together of my interest in hunter-gatherer societies and, mm-hmm. and you know, non-Western, non-civilized ways of thinking and, and being. Mm-hmm. Combine that with the sexuality. And so that felt very meaningful and rich, mm-hmm. you know, and I did that for... Mm-hmm. It's kind of like waves that came through and I just sort of, you know, caught each wave. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I don't feel like there's any, uh, it would be hard for me to point to one particular thing that like, this is what I'm on earth to do. You know, I don't mm. feel like I have one. I ha- and, and I think that's what I 
kind of project onto music that like last mm. night I was watching uh, this Beatles documentary, let it, mm-hmm. is it, let it be or get back. It's, you know, it's this recent one that came out and uh, you know, when I watch those guys, how happy they are when they're just jamming together, you know, like mm-hmm. they're, they're working on a song and they get frustrated and they're like, Oh, fuck it. And they, they just start playing a Chuck <laughs> Berry song that they've played, you know, 7,000 times and they're all smiling and they're happy. And it's like their way of relaxing is to just play the song that they all hmm. love. Um, you know, I sort of project myself into that and imagine, man, if, you know, if I get reincarnated, I hope in my next life I pick up an instrument as a kid and learn, as you were saying, to talk through it. Hmm. And because I, it feels like that would never get old. Hmm. Now, yeah. I say that as a non-musician, so maybe it would. Maybe it would, it would be like traveling or like these other things have been for me, that I would do it for a while and get good at it and but never go to the highest level where it becomes mm. the meaning of my life, you know, you know, like writing. I, I like writing. I'm pretty good at writing. I've been successful at writing, but I don't feel like oh, I can't wait to get up in the morning and work on mm. my next book. You know, I just don't, that's not, I'm, I'm more omnivorous, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. in that respect. But I, I wanted to ask you too, like, how did you hear about this podcast? How how does that happen? And and what part of your life were you in when you became a part of the tangentially speaking weirdo community? <laughs> I think it was maybe at the late 2017 or in, in the beginning of 2018. I saw you on Rogan. And, and were you in Turkey at the time or what was happening? No, I was here. I was oh, in you were Romania. already in, in Romania. Okay, right. Yeah. yeah. And I remember so. the first thing I noticed, it's just one thing came to my mind, like this guy, he shaped the way he talked. You know, you, I'm, I'm not saying that you are not, uh, how to say, um, uh, how to, what's the word? Uh, authentic. Sincere? No. Authentic. Yeah, yeah. It is authentic, but there is a lot of hard work behind that, the way you talk, you know, Hmm. and I really appreciate that. It's just like, for me, it's just like playing an instrument because I see there is some kind of people, they know how they sound. They could hear themselves as someone else, you know, and I felt you, you have this pretty good. And uh, I was uh, really inspired even by the way I talk right now from the podcast. And I think this is if you are wondering why the Romas are like very uh, demanded, it's the reason that the tone behind it and the interesting ideas, there is a lot of hard work. People don't even know that there is behind that. There is a lot of books have been read. A lot of thoughts have been taught, you know, to, for, for someone to be able to talk like that. Uh, and this is an observation and a compliment at the same time. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. It's, it's a strange thing. It, you know, it's like it's difficult to um, like the hardest thing in the world is to see yourself, you know, to to know how um, other people see you or hear you or whatever. It's it's strange. And then and then there's another layer on which, well, do you really is it going to help you to see yourself, you know, or mm-hmm. is it better if you don't? Mm-hmm. Um 
you know, I just had an interview with a conversation with my friend Simon Rex, who's, um, you know, an actor and super attractive. I've heard of it yesterday. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah he's a yeah, great yeah. guy. And one of the yeah. things that's really great about him is that he doesn't think of himself, he doesn't see himself the way other people see him, you know? Hmm. So there's, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of value in ignorance about some aspects of that. Um, but anyway, so I, do you, you said you had other questions you wanted to ask, or was that it? Yeah, I have another question. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Turning the tables. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that in most of your uh, Romas, you, like, I understand, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right, but I understand that maybe you put yourself in some kind of mental space before you go onto the mic, and you only want to transmit, I, don't, I would say, positive energy and stuff. So I think people only know that side of you. But my mm. question was, like, how do you deal when you feel low or sad? Or do you do some kind of rituals? Do you do whatever? I don't know. I'm curious about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I feel, how to say this? It's like, I, I just turned 60, as you know. Um, Mm -hmm. and I have felt one of the things about getting older is that I feel like I'm always kind of sad and I'm always kind of happy. Um, it's become much more balanced when I was younger. I felt like I would have days where I was 90% happy and 10% unhappy. And then uh, the next day, it would be the opposite, 90% unhappy and 10%. And as I've gotten older, those extremes have sort of moved closer and Mm -hmm. balanced out more. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, you know, it's hard for me to think of being very, very sad, but it's also hard for me to think of being very, very happy. Hmm. um, Just because You know, as you get older, you just know you've lost many more friends and you've lost relationships. And, you know, there's just sort of an accumulation of loss and grief um, that doesn't go away. And Mm. so there's definitely happiness, but there's also always it's always balanced. Mm -hmm. So. I mean, if if I feel uh, I don't record, I try not to record when I'm, you know, particularly unhappy, like after my father died or, you know, and something really difficult in my mm-hmm. personal life is happening. I, I try to avoid um, recording anything because I don't want to transmit that. But I do feel like sometimes I transmit frustration at life and, you know, um, and sometimes I... I there's a conflict between wanting to be authentic and honest and feeling Mm -hmm. like a responsibility to be sincere with people who listen to this, but also not wanting to add to the negative energy in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I am frustrated. I think, you know, a lot is going very, very wrong uh, in the Mm -hmm. world. Um, So, I don't know. It's it's weird. It's like you're on a sinking ship. Do you dance or do you scream? Like, what do you do? Hmm. It, the 
if the ship's going to sink, it's going to sink no matter what you do. So <laughs> I don't know. I feel, I feel like the best thing to do is dance and laugh if you can, because that's really the only, the only, um, I don't know, logical response to tragedy hmm. is to try to laugh, but that's difficult. Um, so I don't know. I've, I don't really have an answer to that one. I, I don't have any rituals. Okay. I mean, sometimes I meditate. Sometimes I take a shower. Sometimes I jerk off. You know, what? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. Sometimes works, you do the, all of the three. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Zen, why, why is your name Zen? That's an interesting name. It's an actually it's like Zen is one of those international words. I think they exist in a lot of languages and it's an Arabic name. Uh, it means like nice or handsome or something like that. You know? ah, so, okay. Yeah. So it's not a reference to Buddhism. Uh, no, which I got into like in the recent few years. And now when you were describing the state of mind that that will grow with age, uh, I feel that like uh, is, there is you shouldn't uh, pursue happiness per se. It's uh, either you should uh, just pursue the a way of being, just being yeah. okay. And I, I acknowledge the benefits of meditation and and mindfulness if it's true. I, I remember like so. Here's the thing. I'm gonna tell you what your podcast had, what kind of benefits had on me. First of all, I felt like more connection with my animalistic nature and second of all i learned a lot how to uh, talk to women how to date uh, at one point last year i was dating three women at the same time and doing it like i'm not hiding anything just like hey you want to be with me i'm already with and it went great and the thing i think you said once uh, uh, a really cool advice that really made sense just like if you are a man and you want to date the the thing that will make the woman go away is neediness mm. and that's very true and uh, i think it takes a strong person to not feel that neediness and as i'm as i'm talking it goes it comes and goes sometimes you feel that you are at your best and it's genuine and women especially they feel it they sense it they sense why, like the motives behind the conversation you are talking. It could be any kind of conversation. It could be talking about anything. It's just the energy that go underlying that. This is what women gets directly. And I think the more genuine, the more honest about yourself, and the more you kind of like take yourself not in a serious way. This is very attractive. And uh, at one point, I just I, I in, in in my dating life, as you were saying, like it's a, it's a way of discovering life. I always say to people like I do anthropology through dating, just like dating women from different cultures, from the different body types, different ages. This is teach you a lot about life, and uh, yeah. it's like also expressing yourself as a sexual being and having no shame about it, especially if you come from like a. Uh, how to say my the background that i come from you know yeah and uh, to be able to talk about that freely and with no limits and no shame and nothing and, by the way this is what i want to tell you the story like this because i want to have sex it was one of the motives that i became an atheist on a very early age i was start to think about it when i was 14 and then uh, i met with this alawite kind of priest 
and uh, I asked him a few questions and he didn't know how to answer and that was kind of like he made me go faster on that road it's like uh, this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about and just like <laughs> it's very messy but I think I, I recall the memory of me watching porn and then after uh, I came I felt shame and right. I, I remember the feeling of like I don't want to feel that after mm. each time I do that and this is when I start to watch, uh, what's his name, uh, Richard Dawkins stuff and uh, Stephen Hawking and all of this, like the introduction to atheism. And the the thing is, like, when I meet other atheists from other cultures, it's like they became atheists not because of that. They became for different reasons. And they, you might, I, I always find people like in their 30s, late 30s or their 40s, this is when they realize like, oh, religion is not for me anymore. Because they didn't have a pressure to, mm. to shape their lifestyle. It's just like, you know, if you, are a, if you live in Europe, most probably you're, no one cares if you have sex or not, you know. And uh, my family, they were not religious, but I think they were just like, do whatever you want. You are already, you and your brother and your sister, you are already like, westernized, do whatever you want, just don't hurt anybody. They were not very big on religion, but they were just mm. like, going with the with the crowd. They Like, on public, they didn't dare to say that. They are kind of, I don't know, agnostic. But on, on in, in the household, they were just like, do whatever you want, please. But don't be loud about it, you know? Right. Well, that's so, cool. Yeah, yeah, I would give that to my parents. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Hey, listen, uh, if if anybody listening to this wants to reach out to you, are you on social media or do you welcome that kind of contact? Yeah, sure. Um I am on Instagram, Zen double underscore R, and uh, also I made a Substack account. Um, uh, I have wrote a few things that I want to share maybe in the near future, and I'm really also like want to start a podcast to just deliver a voice that not a lot not heard. I call it the millennial refugee (laughs) (laughs) wow that's a good idea yeah because it's an important it's an important perspective you know the experiences you've had and the multicultural uh, perspective is I think becoming more and more important um, to have someone who can speak articulately to that experience I think is that's really valuable All right. Did you enjoy that conversation? You must have, unless you fell asleep or you're just too tired to push a button and listen to something else. But if you're still here, I'm thinking you might have enjoyed that. So thank you. Thank you for sticking around. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to Zen and uh, just connecting with him. Good dude. I hope I get to have a beer with him sometime and uh, listen to him play guitar. Uh, So check him out. Check out his... um, Instagram page, as he mentioned, say hi, welcome him to the community of Tangentially Speaking. I mean, he's been here for a while. We just didn't know. Now we know. Just like you. So many of you are out there. You're part of this whole thing. You're part of the community, but you're, I don't know you're there. And that's another feature of Substack that I I really like. Um, As I said, even if you're not paying anything, your email's there, and when I 
say something or write something, I know it's going out to you and you can respond to it. So it it brings it more into a community two way communication thing, which is really cool. So chrisryan.substack.com. Thanks for listening. And I will catch you again very soon. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You want to shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground